What should be understood about America becoming more and more communist is not that the government is forcing our hand, but that the people have willingly stepped toward the open arms of socialism and into the warm embrace of communism. What I'm going to point out are decisions that more often than not, we the people have cognitively decided upon. In their riveting book, The Communist Manifesto, and when I say riveting, I mean something that's nearly impossible to read unless you really like history or are just perpetually pissed off at the world. Karl Marx and Frederick Engels summed up history rather carelessly, but nonetheless simply, when they stated, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. According to Marx, everything must be seen through the lens of oppressor and oppressed. The sole purpose of the bourgeois is to take from and exploit the proletariat. But who is the bourgeois and who is the proletariat? Well, the bourgeois is the middle class, private property owners, and the proletariat is the lower class, the working class. Through this theory, it must be accepted and understood that the middle class is constantly concerned with the exploitation of the working class. It is only ever about capital and ensuring that the poor stay poor. It is class warfare, which is why there is a call to violence in the book. It is truly war in practically every sense of the word. Now, the Communist Manifesto was published in 1848, and despite the demise of nations and the death of millions from those who practice the principles in this book, we Americans still seem to be pretty big fans of Marxism. But America was built on the free market enterprise, i.e. Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, while at the same time our founding fathers ensured that financial repute would have no say in who got to get into office. But that doesn't change the fact that we still like to indulge in class warfare. We demonize the rich, even the middle class. We like to divide each other up by educational attainment and race and religion and just about anything else that we can think of. But how can this be? We're not a communist country. Well, this is true, but how true is it? Well, let's look at some of the demands made by Marx and Engels in their most famous work, the Communist Manifesto. The theory of the communist may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property. Modern bourgeois private property is the final and most complete expression of the system of producing and appropriating products that is based on class antagonisms, on the exploitation of the many by the few. This demand for the abolition of private property primarily impacted anyone who owned land. So it wasn't just about the rich. It was about the bourgeoisie, the middle class, the landowners. This rhetoric and the reactions to it have been played out throughout the entire globe. Spain, Russia, China, Cuba, Cambodia, and the list really does go on. It was the prime method of communists to establish power. Take what belongs to someone else. Now, of course, we hear demands like these from far-left groups, but our laws specifically protect our private property. 
Well, at least they're supposed to. Our Fifth Amendment, which states that nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation, protects our private property. Now, this doesn't mean that government can't take land if needed, but it does ensure that we will be justly compensated and that it will be used for public use. Now, on its face, it still doesn't sound good, but with a small and limited government at the time, the use of what is known as eminent domain would be rare. But with the increase of the administrative state through an assortment of federal and state agencies, there has been an increase in governmental land grabs. During the New Deal years, more than 20 million acres was acquired by the Public Lands Division. That's the size of South Carolina. The Public Lands Division originated in 1909 during the Progressive Era. Now, that's an era that I'm going to mention a little later on. The federal, state, and city governments have the power to take your land via condemnation, also known as takings. And here is what is required to conduct a condemnation. According to Ilya Soman, law professor at George Mason University, our property rights have continued to get weaker, and he gives a lot of examples in this Atlantic article. In Clarence Thomas's dissent in Kelo versus City of New London, where the Supreme Court failed to strengthen property rights, he wrote, It is backwards to adopt a searching standard of constitutional review for non-traditional property interest, such as welfare benefits, while deferring to the legislature's determination as to what constitutes a public use when it exercises the power of eminent domain, and thereby invades individuals' traditional rights in real property. The court has elsewhere recognized the overriding respect for the sanctity of the home that has been embedded in our traditions since the origins of the Republic, when the issue is only whether the government may search a home. Yet today the court tells us that we are not to second-guess the city's considered judgment, when the issue is instead whether the government may take the infinitely more intrusive step of tearing down petitioners' homes. Something has gone seriously awry with this court's interpretation of the Constitution. Though citizens are safe from the government in their homes, the homes themselves are not. Once one accepts, as the court at least nominally does, that the public use clause is a limit on the eminent domain power of the federal government and the states, there is no justification for the almost complete deference it grants to legislatures as to what satisfies it. The threat of these takings is no longer just for public use, but also for better use. This means that the government can force the exchange of property from one private citizen to another private citizen. This is nowhere near the Founding Fathers' intentions. This, along with asset forfeitures, where law enforcement can seize your property and return it whenever, or never, all without due process, because due process is just for humans, not the things that maintain their livelihood. One of the most memorable aspects of the Progressive Era was the creation of numerous unions. The institution of collectivism in the U.S. could hardly be better exemplified than by unions. Now, this isn't to say that there wasn't any justification for workers to demand better pay and better working conditions from their employers. But too often, business owners lost power over their own company. And who ended up getting the most power? Well, not the workers. It was the union leaders, the ones who neither owned the company nor did the work. 
And don't even get me started about the countless public unions where taxpayers hardly have any leverage about the decisions made in the public sector, like law enforcement and education, despite the fact that those in the union are paid by taxpayers. And speaking of education, in particular homeschooling, here's what Marx had to say. Do you charge us with wanting to stop the exploitation of children by their parents? To this crime we plead guilty. But you say we destroy the most hallowed of relations when we replace home education by social. And your education? Is not that also social and determined by the social conditions under which you educate? By the intervention, direct or indirect, of society by means of school, etc.? The communists have not invented the intervention of society in education. They do but seek to alter the character of that intervention and to rescue education from the influence of the ruling class. Marx later writes in his Ten Points, Free education for all children in public schools. Horace Mann is considered the father of public school education, and John Dewey the father of progressive education. It shouldn't come as much of a surprise that both of these gentlemen were socialists. In 1837, Horace Mann headed up the first board of education, which was established in Massachusetts. Oh, if only the Sons of Liberty had been alive during that time. But you really can't change society unless you force it to change. The first compulsory school attendance laws were passed in 1852 in Massachusetts. By 1918, all states had passed compulsory school attendance laws. But how could schools have changed society? Horace Mann had a very idealistic view of the public school system, which he called common schools, when he wrote, The common school is the greatest discovery ever made by man. In two grand characteristic attributes, it is supereminent over all others. First, in its universality, for it is capacious enough to receive and cherish in its parental bosom every child that comes into the world. And second, in the timeliness of the aid it proffers. He goes on to say, let the common school be expanded to its capabilities. Let it be worked with the efficiency of which it is susceptible. And nine-tenths of the crimes in the penal code would become obsolete. The long catalog of human ills would be abridged. Men would walk more safely by day. Every pillow would be more inviolable by night. Property, life, and character held by a stronger tenure. All rational hopes respecting the future brightened. Ah, the dreams of a communist. From the hyperbole of the greatest discovery ever made by man to the promises of crime elimination and the touting of the parental bosom of a government entity, man really does echo Marx. It doesn't just sound communist, it also sounds humanist, doesn't it? I'm glad you brought that up. In his 1930 book, Humanism, A New Religion, by Charles F. Potter, an associate of John Dewey, he wrote, Education is thus a most powerful ally of humanism, and every public school is a school of humanism. Dewey, while studying the school systems in Soviet Russia, took note of how the Soviets were going about creating their communal society in his Impressions of Soviet Russia and the Revolutionary World. 
In his writings, he quotes Vladimir Lenin regarding schools. The school, apart from life, apart from politics, is a lie, a hypocrisy. Bourgeois society indulged in this lie, covering up the fact that it was using the schools as a means of domination by declaring that the school was politically neutral and in the service of all. We must declare openly what it concealed, namely, the political function of the school. While the object of our previous struggle was to overthrow the bourgeoisie, the aim of the new generation is much more complex. It is to construct communist society. How would constructing a communist society even be possible through schools? Well, Dewey explains how. The earliest section of the school system, dealing with children from three to seven, aims in the cities to keep children under its charge six, eight, and ten hours per day. And in ultimate ideal, although far from present fact, this procedure is to be universal and compulsory. As I mentioned, school in the U.S. is compulsory. Time spent in school has continued to rise and is now averaging 180 days. The average daily hours spent in school? 6.64. As the demands from government continue to increase, well, so did the attendance. Today, 90% of students attend public government-run schools. Yeah, but Dustin, our graduation rates have really skyrocketed. Well, yeah, that's what happens when it is required by law to go to school, and you pretty much graduate students at almost any cost. Now, that is a really cool guy. Dewey raised some alarm on collectivism's attack on the traditional family when he wrote that thoroughgoing collectivists regard the traditional family as exclusive and isolating in effect and hence as hostile to a truly communal life, is too familiar to require rehearsal. Apart, however, from the effect of the oft-recited Bolshevist modifications of marriage and divorce, the institution of the family is being sapped indirectly rather than by frontal attack. Its historic supports, economic and ecclesiastical, are weakened. But, as always, that could never happen here. So, as the traditional family continues to come under attack from academia, and, of course, indirectly and never by frontal attack, we still usher our school children into their loving arms. Speaking of the traditional family, let's take a look at what old Uncle Carl had to say about it. Abolition of the family. Even the most radical flare-up at this infamous proposal of the communist... On what foundation is the present family, the bourgeois family, based? On capital, on private gain. In its completely developed form, this family exists only among the bourgeoisie. But this state of things finds its complement in the practical absence of the family among the proletarians and in public prostitution. Oh, okay. Let's take it easy, Carl. Now, according to the American Psychological Association, around 40 to 50 percent of marriages end in divorce. The divorce rate for subsequent marriages is even higher. Okay, whatever. We know that people get divorces for good reasons and they get them for bad reasons. But this has actually had an effect on getting married overall. Pew Research indicates we now have a record share of Americans that have never been married. I being one of them. In fact, the median age of a first marriage has never been higher. 
Now, you may be thinking this is only affecting single adults. Well, not exactly. According to Pew Research, one in four parents living with their child are unmarried. And let's take a look at how many children are currently living with either one parent or no parent. Remember the scripture that states that he who finds a wife finds a good thing? Preposterous! The bourgeois sees his wife as a mere instrument of production. He hears that the instruments of production are to be exploited in common, and naturally can come to no other conclusion than that the lot of being common to all will likewise fall to the women. He is not even a suspicion that the real point aimed at is to do away with the status of women as mere instruments of production. For the rest, nothing is more ridiculous than the virtuous indignation of our bourgeois at the community of women which they pretend is to be openly and officially established by the communists. The communists have no need to introduce community of women. It has existed almost from time immemorial. Our bourgeois, not content with having wives and daughters of their proletarians at their disposal, not to speak of common prostitutes, take the greatest pleasure in seducing each other's wives. Bourgeois marriage is, in reality, a system of wives in common, and thus, at the most, what the communists might possibly be reproached with is that they desire to introduce, in substitution for a hypocritically concealed and openly legalized community of women. For the rest, it is self-evident that the abolition of the present system of production must bring with it the abolition of the community of women springing from that system, i.e. of prostitution, both public and private. Now, I told you to take it easy, Marx. But anyways, now, Marx took a very roundabout way to say this because he knew he was making the exception, the rule, out of adultery and fornication. So since some are doing it, why don't we all do it and get rid of the formality called marriage? In other words, Marx had to lie about the situation in order to convince others of conducting such atrocious behavior. Regarding the abolition of the family, there first must be the abolition of the wife, which Marx adheres to, although not personally. It appears the American people are adhering to this idea more and more. Millennials are showing the greatest sign of this idea. As Pew Research has indicated, millennials believe it is more important to be a good parent than having a successful marriage. Of course, some will defend this idea, but the ideal family is to keep the entire family intact. In order to be the best possible parent, a successful marriage is absolute. You don't agree? Well, just ask your kids. Or, if you came from a broken home, then just ask yourself. The government has also gotten into play here over the past 60 plus years by incentivizing divorce and fatherless homes. Amity Schles has done a fantastic job showing the fallout of such governmental decisions. Think tanks like the Brookings Institute and the American Enterprise Institute have conducted thorough studies on how the government has done this either incidentally, accidentally, or purposely, who really knows the heart behind all of it. And lastly, there has been a push that has definitely caught steam to legalize sex work. Oddly enough, or most appropriately, ironically enough, Human Rights Watch has been working to decriminalize sex work, touting that it will better protect sex workers. And open society, perhaps playing on Marx's openly legalized community of women, is also pushing 
for legalizing sex work. Open Society was founded by everyone's favorite human being, George Soros. But communism abolishes eternal truths. It abolishes all religion and all morality, instead of constituting them on a new basis. It therefore acts in contradiction to all past historical experience. The communist revolution is the most radical rupture with traditional property relations. No wonder that its development involved the most radical rupture with traditional ideas. Marx sidesteps the religion accusation by stating it as a mere common objection, but then admits to communism's inevitable rupture of traditional ideas. Within American history, there are the obvious cases against Christianity, with Engel v. Vitale of 1962, which removed prayer from school, followed up in 1963 with Abington School District v. Shemp, which removed Bible reading from school. But that doesn't mean we're removing God, does it? Remember in 2012 regarding having God mentioned in the DNC platform? I'll do that one more time. All those delegates in favor say aye. All those delegates opposed say no. In the opinion of the chair, two-thirds have voted in the affirmative. The motion is adopted and the platform has been amended as shown on the screen. In 2019, the Democrat Majority House changed its rules to remove So Help Me God from its oaths. Two Democrat caucus meetings left out under God during their pledges of allegiance. More broadly and more recently, there have been several legal cases go the wrong way for religious expression. The communists are further reproached with desiring to abolish countries and nationality. When you hear the demands for open borders, it is a demand to eliminate national sovereignty. How so? A country is made up of citizens. When people are able to claim citizenry to a country to which they are not a citizen, the country has officially transferred its sovereignty over to the individual. In fact, all individuals. And therefore, instead of a man without a country, there are no countries at all. And of course, this is merely a reflection of the deeper and more ultimate goal of collectivism, which is to establish the group and eliminate the individual. You have seen the signs for open borders, but you've probably also begun to see a certain political party advocating for open borders. Even Mother Jones's Kevin Drum wrote, I have to admit that it's hard to see much daylight between Elizabeth Warren's plan and de facto open borders. But this has been something that has been ongoing within another political party. Government mandated wage and price controls, anyone? But more specifically, Nixon was no stranger to the idea of the New World Order. Coming to the North Carolina. The team New World Order. Oh, geez. No, not that one. This one. Also, does anyone remember this classic? We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. A world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision 
of the UN's founders. And let's not forget our old pal, Henry. Thomas Graham, the Yale Jackson Institute Senior Fellow and Managing Director of Kissinger Associates, that is quite a title, made this statement seven years ago. We are in the midst of one of the historic global transformations uh, that is going to uh, eventually lead to a, a new world order. The shape of that we don't know at this point, but we know the processes that are underway. Now, the pandemic has brought to the forefront, without hesitation, the discussion of maintaining the current world order or starting a new world order. But how would a new world order actually come into existence? Well, that's easy. Money. And Marx mentions it in his 10 points. Centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. Now, we made that happen when Congress passed and Wilson signed into law the Federal Reserve Act. And with that came the creation of the Federal Reserve System. And speaking of money, that cash had to come from somewhere. And Marx had an idea. But much like the National Bank, we know that that idea really wasn't his. But anyway, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. In 1887, we started on the path to just that with the passing of the Interstate Commerce Act. This was the first act to allow government to regulate private business. Then, progressive groups started advocating for a graduated income tax. Now, if you've never heard of the Farmers Alliance, now would probably be a pretty good time to check it out. I mean, <laughs> who knew those farmers were also socialists? Now, the Farmers Alliance was a major labor union push, eventually reaching up to 3 million members. One of its leaders was S.O. Dawes, who rallied the troops with rhetoric like this. The capitalist, hold your confidence in one hand while with the other, he rifles your pocket. This movement originated from within the Democratic Party, but eventually their radicalism proved too much for the Democrats, who eventually started to ignore them or just push them out. So what did they do? They started their own party, the People's Party. Vladimir would be so proud. They even had their own newspaper, the People's Party paper, the PPP. Oh, geez. If I never hear that acronym again, it'll be too soon. If you're a small business owner like myself, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the Farmers Alliance pushed for a graduated income tax and direct election of U.S. Senators. But come on. I mean, <laughs> who's going to listen to those socialists hell-bent on Marxist ideology? <laughs> What's that? Oh, right. We granted the government power to levy a federal income tax with the 16th Amendment. And with the 17th Amendment, we chose to change the way that we elect our senators. Direct election. Pure democracy. One of the greatest fears of our founding fathers. You know, there's really nothing better than ignoring the brilliant founding fathers in favor of old Karl Marx. Next, I say we just abolish the Electoral College. Now, to wrap this all up, you may hear Christians or non-Christians try to call Jesus a socialist or Christianity a socialistic belief. But where would someone even come up with such an idea?
Nothing is easier than to give Christian asceticism a socialist tinge. Has not Christianity declaimed against private property, against marriage, against the state? Has it not preached in the place of these, charity and poverty, celibacy and mortification of the flesh, monastic life and mother church? Christian socialism is but the holy water with which the priest consecrates the heart burnings of the aristocrat. Marx was no stranger to perverting anything that might be good, so perverting the scriptures is no leap. Jesus stating not to worry about your provision is not the same as embracing poverty or the declination of private property. Paul suggesting not getting married is not a statement against marriage. Jesus called us to be pure in our sexuality, not virgins during marriage. So yes, we do continue to move closer and closer to communism, but it has been such a slow trek that we hardly even notice it. And when we do notice it, we justify the movements. Therefore, it should be no surprise that countless Americans have fully embraced groups like Black Lives Matter that fully embrace the principles of Karl Marx stated in the Communist Manifesto. You know, this didn't happen overnight. In fact, it's been happening for the past 150 years. We're just now noticing it. Or are we? Now, can we strike up the national?